The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You can expect as we are on mission for the Lord and, and doing the things that God has called us to. And, and I have to tell you, in, in our culture, I mean, I, yeah, we can go into the news and we can look at the things that are going on in the world around us. And absolutely, you're right. Christianity in many ways is under attack. There are a lot of things outside the walls of this church that would seek to bring down what God is doing. Would we agree with that? Sure. Is that the most common threat we deal with as Christians in our uh, 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 mission that God has us on, though? The attacks from outside? No, not in my experience. Maybe your experience has been different. The vast majority, the vast majority of challenges um, that I as a pastor have had to either walk people through or or deal with myself with regards to ministry I was involved in, or, or the vast number of stories that I hear from other people as they're walking through either other ministries or, or God's calling in their life, the vast percentage of issues, challenges, um, things that would derail them come from within. It's strife within the church. It's division within family members. It's, it's battles going with it. If anything, a lot of times churches today, we have a harder time getting people to go out there and face the opposition that's out there. It's the opposition that is inside that seeks to just constantly derail the things that the Lord is doing. And, and that can look like a lot of different things. There's a church in Bend that I've been aware of. It was a massive church. It was maybe, I guess, the biggest church in Bend for a really long time. And then the pastor there fell to sin. There was some debate and division that went on within on how they're going to deal with it. And the next thing you know, that church went from like, I want to say 2,000 people. I think today it's like 200. Um, There's other churches even locally in our area right here that have gone through church splits and division and animosity. And then other churches come up and then we have rivalries between churches and you have that kind of stuff going on. You can have division within over all sorts of things. It's interesting. We were talking about it actually as a staff this week. And, and you know, this weekend we dealt with Calvinism and Arminianism and those kind of things. Um, big theological issues that have historically divided the church. Um, but the interesting thing that I've found here at our church in particular, actually, um, and really at a lot of the churches I've been a part of before, the things that tend to divide people within the church usually aren't even theological in nature, though that happens. It's usually, well, the, the churchy word is ecclesiology, or in other words, how we do things, how the church is run, um, the practices of the church, the format of the church, um, flavor, style. But even more than that, it tends to be just interpersonal issues that are going on within the body of Christ, within, like, brother to brother have an issue with one another. That rhymed. Poet. Didn't know it. And this is the case throughout the whole of biblical teaching. Biblical teaching guarantees you if you step out and do anything for God, opposition is coming. And we can expect it from out there. It's sad but true that we should expect it from within as well. And so this is what we're going to be dealing with today. Um, Today's is extreme for sure, but there's lessons for us to learn Um, Nehemiah's project, like I said, is well underway. It's only going to be a 52-day project overall. We could say it's about halfway done here. It's going swimmingly, and then major issues erupt. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. The fact, by the way, that it says, and of their wives, is, is there really to further increase our understanding of how intense the outcry is, because in that day and age, the, the women just wouldn't have spoken. 
And so for the writer to say that everyone is here, the idea is this is a public issue. Whether it's some debate, it's a riot that's going on. Some will say it's protesting. Um, A lot of that is just speculation. But clearly there is a massive, massive problem going on in Judah. Now we knew Judah was in dire straits already. That's why Nehemiah is there, right? In in Nehemiah 1 verse 3 it says, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived exile is in great trouble and shame. So we know the people of Judah are struggling there in this area, but things have gotten way, way worse. Poverty and the economic situation going on in Judah is really, really dire. Um, And this is serving to cause all sorts of problems, the way that people are acting, the things that they're doing. You guys know, man, when people are under the pinch financially, um, there's there's no limit to the things that the wickedness of man will do sometimes with regards to money. I mean, from drugs prostitution, stealing, embezzlement. I mean, you put the financial squeeze on someone and you can really see what's going on inside the heart. You see those things come out in a lot of cases. And right now, this place is really under the squeeze, big time. See, first of all, Judah's been cut off from all of its neighbors. Now that they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, it seems to pose a threat to other kingdoms nearby, and it, almost, it looks like they're even isolating themselves to some degree from others. So it would seem that trade among partnering nations has been affected greatly. There's no real commercial ties right now for them. And then second of all, Nehemiah's own demands on the workers are causing a problem. Because Jerusalem at this time is an agricultural nation. This is all, that's how they live. They're growing their own grain, they grow their own food, they're farmers, all of these things. But Nehemiah has put restrictions on the people because now everyone is there to support this project. So, for example, the rural farmers that used to go outside the area of Jerusalem and grow crops and work on their fields, well, they're now required to be inside the walls, and it was expected of all the workers that they would spend the night inside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, um, guarding one another and looking out for one another. Workers are working around the clock, and so a lot of the the farming that would take place in other areas isn't happening because this wall project now seems to have taken precedence over everything. And while the people, they understand the need, they're excited about the fact that the wall's coming, but it's causing them some significant challenges at home, significantly, and the situation is just getting worse. So it's described to us beginning in verse 2. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were those also who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So here's the situation that's going on. Let me summarize it. This loud cry breaks out. And the issue, they're starving. There's just not enough food to feed everyone. And they're really nervous about how they're going to get through the season ahead. They're not producing enough food. They're not working their fields. And they're broke. They're out of money. And so as a result, they're taking steps to address this need that really they can't even afford. You have some people that are actually mortgaging out their land. 
They're selling off their land to other people or, or getting loans against their land because they need to be able to eat and they got to do something. And then when they can't pay that debt back, the people who, they had made the, who held the title, if you will, because of these mortgages are now taking over and foreclosing on the land from this. So people are losing their fields left and right. Then you also have farmers who are having to borrow money to pay taxes to the, opposite, the opposing or the oppressing, you could say, government. The taxes then famously were very steep. So, so think about it from this standpoint. Think how fair you would feel if you're one of these farmers. You're going, okay, I'm paying taxes on my farm to this king who's not our actual people. And then this king has now commissioned that I'm not farming now. Now I'm building a wall instead of farming, but I still have to pay my taxes. And in the meantime, I'm not even growing anything to sell to pay those taxes or food even to feed my family. So I'm just stuck from every direction. And so as the pinch gets tighter and tighter and tighter around this situation, you see darker and darker and darker solutions to the point that people are then taking out loans. When they can't pay those loans back, they're giving their sons away as slaves to work off the debt to the people who, who they owed money to. And they're giving their daughters away as second wives to others. So there's slavery going on even amongst their own people, a group of people that are in the process of moving out of exiled slavery, and this is happening now right here in Jerusalem. And to make matters worse, who are the people that they're getting these loans from? Who are the people that are taking their sons' enslavement? Who are the people that are taking their daughters? It's their own brothers. It's Jewish people loaning money to Jewish people and then taking sons, daughters, slavery, property from other Jewish people, all while this whole project's going on this design to what? Unify, restore, and protect the Jewish people. So there's some horrific things that are going on. And, and because of all this, not only is all this injustice going on, but even the entire socioeconomic system of Judah is in grave peril. Before They're, they're going to get the walls up to protect nothing. That's what it looks like right now. And so this is the issue. And so there is a loud public cry going on. And so Nehemiah hears about it in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now, I, we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth revisiting really briefly. He says, very angry. Not just like, I was angry. I thought, that's not fair. He says, I was very angry. And I, we've talked about this, like I said before, but it's worth reminding. The Bible actually commends anger to us. Did you guys know that? Like the Bible tells us to be angry. It does. In Ephesians, which we're in on Sundays, we'll get to pretty soon, it says, be angry and sin not. So in other words, there is a way to be angry that is not sinful. We even see that Jesus at different times in his ministry when he saw oppression was angry. Remember the man with the withered hand? And when they had set that whole thing up to see if Jesus was going to heal on the Sabbath or not, and these men were being judgmental in their hearts, and Jesus saw that whole situation, he saw the religious people that were overlooking this guy's need and just wanting to try to bust him in some stupid religious rule, and he says that Jesus was angry. When Jesus is outside the tomb of Lazarus and he sees death and its effects on people and the, the emotion and everything that's going on, it says that Jesus was greatly distressed, deeply moved in spirit. Um, that doesn't mean he was sad, though he was because Lazarus was his friend. That literally means he was angry. It's translated in every other area in the Bible as angry except there for some reason. 
But he was angry when he saw the effects of sin. When he goes into the temple and sees people are being ripped off right there in God's house of worship, what is he? Come on, you know it. Angry. He's angry when he sees that. The Bible commends that we be angry, but we're supposed to be angry about the things that make God angry. And instead, we tend to get angry about things that, instead of things that are trampling God's glory or hurting God's people, we get angry about things that trample our glory or hurt us, is what we tend to do. Um, whether we've been offended, whether we've been wronged, whether someone cut us off in traffic or, or uh, you know, served our food cold at a restaurant or whatever those things, our anger tends to be, and I, I know, huge brush I'm painting with. I, I'm aware of that. Most of you are saints. This is not describing you. Totally describes me, though, okay? Um, but getting angry about things that have nothing to do with, like, God's heart or God's mission, but things that are encroaching on our pride or our per- perceived notions of rights or freedoms or whatever the case may be. And that's a different kind of anger. When we see injustice, when we see people hurting, when we see God's people being attacked and sold into slavery, when we hear like uh, Bucky who was here this weekend, if you were here sharing about um, stuff that they're doing for the sex trafficking trades and all these things, when we hear about the reality of children being sold into sex slavery and things like that, that's got to make you angry. When you hear about children that are being killed by the millions every year within our own borders under a legal medical situation, that should make you angry. We should get angry about things that God is angry about. And Nehemiah sees this great oppression going on within the walls of his own people. And he's angry. He's very angry. And so in verse 7, he does two things. Number one, he says, I took counsel with myself And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So he's angry, but it says he took counsel with himself. So in other words, he's not just flying off the handle. I'm angry, and I'm going to deal with this right now. And he's not just going nuts and just flipping over tables on his own or anything. Maybe that's a bad analogy because that's not what Jesus did either. In fact, Jesus actually, if you read the story, takes the time to build a whip. He spends some time thinking that through, which is my favorite part of that story. that, That Jesus sees this stuff going on inside the courtyard He goes, I'm going to build a whip, and I'm going to go to town. And he's got all this time while he's building a whip to think that through. Go, well, maybe this isn't the best plan. Maybe I could be a little more gentle. And he's like, no, it's whip. That's what it needs. And I I love that part of that story. I think it's awesome. Can't wait to ask him about that. Or what he built the whip out of. Lots of things. Anyway. But, but this is the idea. It says that he, he took counsel with himself. Now, the words there don't mean that he looked within himself and didn't go to the Lord because someone would go, oh, he should have prayed first. That, that's not what that means. What it means is that he took a moment, and knowing what we know about Nehemiah, he was absolutely a man of prayer. All it means is he took a minute to sit back and to assess the situation, to think about, to ponder, to meditate, to pray about what he was going to do next. He didn't just fly off the handle. Because angry or not, we know also from Scripture, though, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So he took a moment to think this through. But, number two, he brought charges against the nobles and officials. And and this is what I think is really good, too, because it it seems like a no-brainer, but but it's not. When we see injustice, when we see... uh, uh, um, children in slavery, or we see God's people oppressed, or we see these sorts of injustices. We should be angry. We should be emotionally moved when we see these. That's why God gave us emotions. If that doesn't move us emotionally, I don't know what would. So, so when we see gross injustice, we should be angry, right? But that's got to go somewhere. 
Like, like it's not just enough to be moved and then go on about your day. I mean, like, God brings things our way sometimes and brings things to our attention and even stirs emotions within us sometimes because he wants us to do something about it, not because he just wants those things to go away. I mean, you're given passions and, and fire in your gut, if you will, sometimes because God is using you to deal with things. I mean, Nehemiah sees this and he is angry and he's worked up and he thinks about this and now, but he's going further. He's going to actually bring charges and do something about the injustice that he sees. And I think that's really important. I think many churches and many Christians historically are definitely for feeding the hungry and for taking care of orphans and for doing all these things, but way more verbally for them than actual action for them. Um, and that's hard. I, I understand that. Like that's, you, you could totally bully pulpit someone into all these things. But, but here's what I would say. Like when you see an injustice that burns within you, when you see something, whether it's abortion or, or orphans or abuse or the sex trade or, or whatever it is, and you see an injustice that even just something involving a neighbor nearby and it's burning within you, then maybe you need to take a moment to seek the Lord, to seek counsel like Nehemiah did, and to say, what should I do about this, Lord? What can I do about this? And to actually move. I mean, the Bible backs this in the book of James. In James chapter 2, it says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, then what good is that? It's, it's not just enough that we are moved, but the, the emotions being moved should lead us to actually move. Does that make sense? And so this is what Nehemiah says. He sees an oppression. He's like, this is burning. This is wrong. I'm angry. What am I going to do about this, Lord? What are we going to do about this? And then he moves. And he does it in a unique way, actually. It says he took counsel with himself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. Now think about this for just a minute. You'll understand why I say this is a unique move that he's making. He says he's pressing charges, okay? So he sees this injustice. He's angry. He prays about it. I'm pressing charges, lawsuit filed, criminal charges, whatever you want to call it. He's literally bringing formal charges against them. But against who? the nobles and the officials. Who are they? The people that hear cases against other people when injustice has happened. These are the judges. These are the lawyers. These are the civic leaders. These are the rulers of the city. And so think about this for a second. He can't just go to the judge and say, I would like to file charges against um, you. What he does instead is he actually calls a great assembly. He says, and I held a great assembly against them. So he has put these guys in the hot seat because what he's done is brought all the people around him that are worked up. And he's declared a trial, if you will, with them now as the, being accused and the people who have been bringing these charges up as the actual witnesses to what's going on. So it's a really unique move here that's putting a lot of pressure on these guys, but it's a strategic and brilliant move on his part. So he calls this great assembly or special congregation, some translations put it. And in verse 8, and it says, and he said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. And and this really highlights 
the, the darkness, the depravity of what's going on here. Because these are the civic leaders, these are the judges, if you will, of this area, and they're the actual ones who are profiting off of the struggles of the, the normal people in Jerusalem and are even the ones who are buying into slavery these children, these girls, into their own households. And the thing that makes that even the most disturbing is because clearly from what Nehemiah says here, they were actually involved in going and buying Israelite people out of slavery from neighboring nations. There's a word for that you might know if you've been in church for any time or long. That's called redemption. So these people were redeeming Jewish people out of slavery, then bringing them back into the city. And then when the socioeconomic situation blows up and people are struggling, they're profiting off of that, and now they are the ones enslaving their own brothers and sisters. It's disgustingly perverted and horrific what's going on here. And another one of those cases of it's really easy to see someone else's sin and get really fired up about what someone else is doing um, and be blinded completely to what's going on in your own life. And so these charges come against them. What are you doing? Like you were involved in bringing these people out of slavery. You were involved in de- delivering, redeeming your own people. And now you're doing the same thing that they, that's worse than what they were doing. I mean, these are pagans. They don't know any better. But what are you doing? So, verse 8. No, verse 9. And so I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Okay, so the people are clearly in violation of God's law. There is a gross sin going on. And Nehemiah brings up two things, three things really. Number one, you are sinning against God. The scriptures are really clear. God made it really clear in the law that the people of Israel, they were allowed to give loans. People of Israel are absolutely allowed to give loans to other people. The people of Israel also were allowed to give loans that charge interest to people outside the people of Israel. So if someone from another nature, or, excuse me, nation comes by, are they allowed to give a loan? Yes. Can they make interest on that loan? Yes. The law also allows the people of Israel to give loans to one another within the nation of Israel, within the family, if you will. So someone from Israel comes to you, a Jew comes to another Jew and says, I'm struggling, man, I need a loan. Are they allowed to give that loan? Yes, absolutely. But it is absolutely against God's law that a Jewish person is able to bring, uh, or to give a loan at interest to another Jewish person. The idea is God was like, look, you guys were once slaves and in grace I delivered you. And so you're going to look out for one another. You're going to have one another's backs. And so, so there were strict and very well-known laws about what they could and couldn't do with regards to interest rates. And beyond even that, they absolutely were not allowed to take another Jewish person as a slave, ever. That, was, that would be like the grossest of injustices to those people, a group of people who had been delivered out of slavery originally in Egypt, and now a group of people who were still scattered all over the world in exile, in slavery. To, for a Jew in that time with that injustice going on to take another Jew is unthinkable. So they're sinning against God. They're sinning against one another as they, as they do these injustices to their brethren. 
But, but there's also a sin taking place and an injustice or a wrong taking place with regards to the people outside the walls, if you will, the non-Jewish people there. And you see it here in the text. He says, this thing you're doing is not good. And then he says, ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? And this is a big deal. So think about this. You got Sanballat. You got all these guys that are opposing Israel on the outside. And they're going, what are you doing? You're not going to do this. They're trying to stop this work. And the whole time you have the people of Israel saying what? We're doing God's work. The Lord on high has told us to do this work, and we are here simply because we're serving him. And so this opposition gets pushed back and gets pushed back, but then all those people are watching, and what is it they see? They're just like us. They're just like us. The Lord's work, all that stuff. Well, they're, they're coming over here, buying people back from us, saying these are God's people, this is God's, but then they're turning around and enslaving them themselves bunch of stinking hypocrites. That's what they are. They're just like us. Does that happen today? It happens all the time. Think about how much Western Christianity in our lifetimes has been defined, or at least perceived by people outside the church as being defined by nothing more than we're against that, we're against that, we're against that, we're against that, we're against that. We protest that, we don't do that, we don't watch that, we don't do this, and, and, and just always, that's, this is what a lot of the world thinks, fairly or not, this is what a lot of the world thinks with regards to Christians. But when they look inside, what do they see? What's the difference? Do they see the same things? Do they see churches dividing do they see backbiting amongst people who are supposed to be brothers? Do they see God's people who are about God's holy work acting just like the guy down the street who's running the pawn shop? I can, we all know the answer to this, right? They see it all the time. They see it all the time. It's amazing how, you know, sometimes we'll say things like, man, we're not supposed to live based on what other people think. You ever heard that before? Um, and ultimately, there's truth to that because who is the ultimate person that we're supposed to live in fear of? It's clearly who? It's God, right? It's what God calls us to do that we're to live in fear of. That's who we're ultimately um, um, to deal with, right? But the Bible also talks about things like avoiding even the appearance of evil. It talks about walking in the fear of God. Well, even in our text right here, walking in the fear of God because nations are watching, it talks about letting your light shine on a hill so that others might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And unfortunately, way too often, when people look from outside within the church, what they see is nothing any different than maybe any other business or social club or group of friends that they see. They see people that divide over things way too easily, that argue over things way too much, they see the same sorts of sins and the same sorts of injustices and the same sorts of practices um, in many, many cases. And, and horrifically so, they see the same thing, just like in Nehemiah's day, they see sometimes the very church leaders themselves being the ones that are propagating these things, running nonprofits as for-profit businesses, abusing their congregations. They see all of these same sorts of things going on. They look inside and they go, it's, it's, why, would I, why do I need to go there? That's the Lord's work. It's the same work I do every day. It doesn't look any different than anything I see anywhere else. 
I mean, this should just be a good word of warning to us because hypocrisy is real within the church. Hypocrisy is absolutely real. Now, this was going to be my closing point, but I'm going to say it now because I feel like I should. I do not, by, def- by default now, or not by default, deduction, I don't know. What I don't mean but is this. Guys, get it together. We should be perfect. We should never fall. We should, I mean, should we sin? Of course not. Should we strive to, to honor God in everything that we do? Should the church do everything it can to follow God's law to the T and be holy and separate and different? Should we do that? Yes. Is it possible? No. So what do we do about that? How is it that we set ourselves apart if we might from time to time still fall to the same sorts of sins that the world's there because we're all fallen, have the same fallen nature as well. What is something we can do to deal with that? Well, look what happens. Verse 10, he goes on and he says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Nehemiah, there's a, a great tangent we could go on if we had time to talk about leadership and the importance of integrity as leaders because here's Nehemiah as a leader being able to say, look, I've done this. I'm not telling you to do something that I'm not doing. I'm giving loans without interest. So he's able to say, not just do this, but follow me as I do this. Leaders set the example. But in verse 11, it says, Now return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Give the fields back. Repentance involves more than just saying you're sorry, but it's making things right. Doing whatever you can to say, I'm sorry I offended you, and I'm going to do whatever I can to repair the damage that's been done. And in verse 12, it says, And then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now, what's going on there is um, the garments, the robes there would have these folds in them. And a lot of times you, you could basically think like pocket. People would carry a lot of their personal items in there. So the idea is like pulling out your pocket, shaking out your pocket. Whatever it is that you were carrying is being shaken out of its hold. And so he's saying here, guys, you need to give all this land back. You need to give this money back that you've taken. You need to do all this. And they're saying, we'll do it. And he has them all together and he says, and may the Lord, he's shaking this off, shaking all these things out. May the Lord shake you out of his hold, out of his household, out of his family if you do not do these things or if you go back on this promise. And they're saying, we will. So, so let's go back to the question again. The world's watching. And from time to time, division occurs within the church, does it not? From time to time, we're going to have issues with one another. Are we not? Some of you have issues with me right now. So that's going to happen, right? It happens. From time to time, we're going to blow it. The gospel assures us of that reality that we cannot walk perfectly in sin. By God's grace, we should be walking closer and closer now than we were before, right? But is perfection a a likelihood or even a possibility within the church? No. But what is it that we can do that sets us apart from the things that people see everywhere else in the world? Is we can repent. We can humble ourselves to one another. Because in this story, God's word comes to bear 
that they are sinning against their brother, they're sinning against God, they are understanding what's going on, and to their credit, these guys, these leaders are repenting. They're giving the land back. They're giving the children back. They're giving all these things back, and they're doing whatever they can to humble themselves, to make things right, and to preserve unity within there. And Nehemiah's leadership and integrity and their humility saving the unity of the nation of Israel and this entire whole thing that they're doing in the first place. And that's what we can do. And I the last thing that I want to portray as I'm talking with you guys here about this kind of stuff is like, hey guys, everybody's watching. Stop screwing around. Get it right. Don't you understand? Like, we could put so much pressure on one another with that that would just be ridiculous. What I want to say is, man, walk with God to the best of your ability. But, but when this stuff happens, man, follow that example. I would take an imperfect but repenting church over a pretend seems to be perfect church any day of the week. Because one of them's honest. One of them's real. And I think one of them even honors God and represents the gospel in the way that they relate to one another through those things. Because isn't the gospel that we have fallen and we're imperfect and we are undeserving of grace and yet our sin, which was not Jesus' fault, Jesus made it his responsibility, took it on his shoulders, humbled himself, came here to deal with our sin, preserve our unity with him and with God that we might walk in peace with him forever. And so from time to time, Things are going to happen in here. Someone's going to offend you in church. Someone's going to wound you. Someone's going to hurt you. And you're going to have this thing that's going to flare up inside you. It's going to be anger, usually. I would first challenge you, what kind of anger is that? Is that God-righteous kind of anger? Or is that he's offended me, he's offended my pride, he's made me mad, that wasn't fair to me, and you're just mad? If it's that kind of anger, repent. Go to your brother. Repent. Well, it wasn't my fault. He was the one that did it. The good news of the gospel is it wasn't Jesus' fault. Your sin was not Jesus' fault, but he made it his responsibility, and he dealt with it to preserve your ability to have unity with God. And so my encouragement to you, don't be like the rest of the world that is so quick to end every relationship, that is so quick to separate. I mean, the very fact that cities have first, second, third, and fourth Baptist churches should tell you all you need to know about church history, right? You know that's how that stuff happens. And, and so many, we, we talked about this weekend about the idea of dividing over things like um, soteriology, the Calvinism-Arminian debate, and all those kind of things. Guys, there are full denominations of churches now that exist that are in two separate worlds completely because of that very argument. It doesn't need to be. And so my encouragement to us is may we be like Nehemiah to just stop for a minute and go, I'm offended, I'm angry, Why? Is this righteous anger? Is this something that I need to take a stand? And if it is, I'm taking a stand. I'm going to stay, I'm going to be angry, and I'm going to deal with this. God, what do I do from here? But, but if it's not that kind of anger, if you're angry because someone just pointed out a fault or a sin or an issue in your own life, and you're angry because you're just offended and hurt, then take a moment and go, you know what? Maybe I need to humble myself. And if you're like me, you might not get there right away. Most of us, it doesn't happen on the first instance, right? Jeff, you've offended me. Well, you offended me too. And it might take me a little while. 
I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. There are times I, I have cultivated a practice that I've tried to stick with, and not always, but I've tried, and that's this. When I've got an issue, especially if it's one where an email comes to me, and that happens all the time, there are so many times that I've written responding emails, and then I save them. I don't send them, I save them. And I come back a day later, one day later, read the email, and decide, do I really want to send that? I cannot tell you how many emails I have had to swallow down and hit delete. I would say most of them. If you've ever gotten an email from me, you probably got the fifth, sixth, or seventh draft. <laughs> Just so you guys know, it's probably true. But, but here's what I know. Our tendency, because we are sinful, fallen people, is to be offended in our flesh and to fly off the handle in anger and react on that flesh. And if things don't cower then to what our needs feel like they are to be, someone doesn't respond the way we think, then we'll just separate completely. It takes a move of the Spirit in your lives to stop, humble yourself, and repent. That's a work of God. And as we grow and walk with Lord, we need to allow the Spirit to do that in our own hearts, to be slow to anger, quick to forgive, quick to repent. May we grow in that. Amen? But on top of that too, can I just say this? Be different. Like, don't be like the rest of the world. Be different. Be humble. Be repentant. Don't talk like them, live like them, act like them. Be different because I assure you, they're watching. Let's pray. You can stand with me, would you? God, I would imagine I am not the only person in this room that was convicted by these truths today. And Lord, I repent, and those who would join with me, Lord, we repent, Lord, for our failures, for our our just quick tendency to want to defend ourselves, to fly off the handle, to, to react when we've been offended. Lord, I ask your forgiveness for that. And Lord, I ask, Lord, and those who would, who would ask of you as well for themselves, Lord, who would join with me, we just ask, Lord, that, that you would give us grace. God, look how patient you've been with us. Look how many times we've blown it over and over and over, offending the perfect and holy God and creator of the universe, and yet you are so patient with us. Lord, help us to follow after your example. Help us to be led by your spirit. Help us to be gracious, humble, and forgiving to others, Lord. Help us to be different than the world around us. And Lord, I just thank you, Lord. We've even already learned this in Nehemiah, that you don't just call us to do something, but you empower us to do it. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit would come upon every person here and give us the ability to walk in that kind of grace because we will never find that within ourselves. So may you have your way with us. And Lord, I pray people would watch us. And I pray that, Lord, the way that we interact with one another would just be testimony of your gospel. That the things that we do wouldn't look like we're doing the same thing the world does, but instead as they see us, may they be attracted to that and may they want to see you as a result. May our good works, even with one another, cause people to glorify you in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you Sunday morning.